Well, today's Bible story is fairly straightforward. Don't give enough to the church and God will strike you dead, right? <laughs> or maybe not. So, we're in this series called Our Strange Bible. And so this is looking at some of these stories that we read. And maybe we've read many times before. And I know some of you have had this experience where there's even, particularly in the Old Testament passages, you're reading along, all of a sudden you come across something, you say, I never saw that before. All kinds of strange things. Well, this is one maybe a little more prominent, one you're more familiar with or have heard before. But like me, wonder, what in the world's going on here? Is that really what the story's about? It might be tempting for a pastor to want to preach that way, to say, look, God says, give everything you got, otherwise he's going to strike you dead. But I don't think that's what the story's teaching. So you're safe in that manner. But you might not like what I say by the end of the sermon. So, but the... But we'll look and see what's going on here. So as we look at these strange Bible stories, one of the things we always want to pay attention to is where does it fit in the bigger story? That it's not simply a matter of ripping out these little tiny snippets, a page here and there and say what it is, because this story had something that happened right before and something that happened right after. And it's part of a bigger story and they're designed to be read that way. We in the modern world read little chunks of the Bible. And we read this thing, but when they were written, it's like a novel or book. It's given to read the whole thing. You don't just open a book and turn to page 67 and read a couple paragraphs and say, oh, what a great story. You have to read the whole thing. So the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke. And Luke also wrote a gospel, one of these four stories of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Luke is maybe the familiar one. We know many of the stories. He tells the birth story of Jesus. And then he tells the life of Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And the gospel of Luke ends with Jesus walking with his disciples. And then the book of Acts is almost a sequel. It's saying, but it didn't stop there. It didn't stop with Jesus being raised from the dead. The book of Acts begins with Jesus with his disciples. And he's been raised from the dead and he's teaching them about all these things, what they mean. And, but then he tells them, he says, you're going to wait because there's something more that's going to happen. He says, you are going to be my witnesses right here where you live in the surrounding communities, farther away into the ends of the earth. But I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. I'm going to send the Spirit to help you do that, to empower you to do that. And so in Acts chapter 2, that's what we find. The Holy Spirit comes this day. We call Pentecost. The Spirit comes and they preach and thousands of people begin to become followers of Jesus. And the book of Acts then tells the story of this movement of this group of people empowered by the Spirit, taking the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And in Acts chapter 2, there's this description of the community. And it says this, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So there's this incredible description of the people being together. They're worshiping together. They're praying together. They're eating together. They even share the things that they own. And it says the church continues to grow. And then there's a story of Peter, this one of these leaders in the early church, he heals a lame beggar and he speaks to the people. And then the religious leaders begin to get upset. And they're saying, no, no, we don't like this message that you're teaching. 
Maybe because they just, they don't believe it. Maybe because it's taking away their power. But they're kind of pushing back and they're saying, we don't want you to do this. We don't want you to speak about this Jesus anymore. And this is in chapter 4. And the believers get together and they pray. And it's interesting when they pray, they're looking at this attempt to stop them from preaching. And they say, they don't say take away the obstacle. They say, God, make us more bold. Make us bold. And continue to do miracles. Stretch out your hand. And it says, after they prayed, this is chapter 4, verse 31. The place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So there's this boldness that comes. And now comes this passage that kind of repeats what I read from chapter 2, which sets up our story. And it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought them money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So, I want you to step back and listen to that. All the believers were one in heart and mind. So one of the key things that enabled this church, this group of believers, these people from all over the world, because Acts chapter 2 says they were from all over the place. They were from all different ranks of society. They were from different backgrounds. They all came together. And what connected them is they were all one in heart and mind. How many times have you been a part of a church that's like that? Where everybody agrees. And you look and you just say, wow, this church is just all one in heart and mind. But that's what it was like. And there was this all one heart. Said, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Somebody have a, if you've got your Bible there, a slightly different thing. Everything they had was in common, is kind of the language. And this word in common is interesting. So in the Greek language, there's this word, some of you, if you've been around church for a while, may be familiar with this word koinonia. Anybody have heard the word koinonia? And we often translate it simply as fellowship. And now when we think of fellowship, fellowship is what? Hanging out together, right? And fellowship is a very churchy word, isn't it? I mean, most of the time it's like, oh, I was with some people from church and we had some good time of fellowship. Not something you like, very seldom do you hear somebody say, well, I was down in my bowling league and it was just such a great time of fellowship. (laughs) You know, I was out with my fishing buddies. We just had this great time of fellowship. That's not the kind of language that we use because fellowship has kind of this church feel. Even though sometimes we mean by it, we just ate coffee and cookies together and talked. And even though we may have just talked about the weather or sports teams or school or the aches and pains that are in our body, we call it fellowship. But the language here is when they shared everything they had, it's the same root. In other words, they were in fellowship. They had everything in common. And so Koinonia is more than just about hanging out together. It's this sense of unity. It's this sense of being together. Justo Gonzalez, a history a church professor, history professor, talks about this, and he said, that's really what it's more. It's about this partnership is maybe a better word. And sometimes they shared everything they had. And some people look and say, well, like, oh, so did, were they communists back then? And that's not what it says. It says they shared everything they had, and you look later on, and it says they were free to distribute and sell. that the apostles didn't come in and take everything from the people. But there was this sense that they were all in it together. 
that they looked around and they knew each other and they lived each other's lives and they were so much a part of each other's lives that they knew when this person over here had a need. And they knew when this person over here had a need. And there wasn't a debate about it. They just said, look, there's somebody in need. You know, I got a little bit extra over here. And they sold it off. And then it says in that language, it says, they put it at the apostles' feet. And this language shows up several times here. They come and they, they lay it at someone's feet. What does that evoke for you, this sense of laying it at feet? It's a sense of submission. It's a sense of authority. It's saying, we're giving it over to you. You're the representatives. And they're laying it at the possibility. And it's a part of saying, we're in this together. We're a part with you. And here's what we have. Here's how we're contributing. But even listen to how it's described. It says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. That word grace... We usually think of that as what? That's, that's how we get saved, right? We're saved by grace. That we don't do anything for it, but God's grace is what saves us. So if you were to say, oh, grace was powerfully at work in the church and lots of people were coming to Jesus, it would make sense. It doesn't say that here. It says, I'm not saying that people weren't coming to Jesus. They were. But here what it says is, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. In other words, God's grace is what works inside of us to change and to transform us into who he wants us to be. And God's grace, which is what? God's grace is giving, right? Most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16 says what? So for God so loved the world that he what? He gave. And here God's grace is so powerfully at work in the people that they're what? They're doing giving. They're imitating God. They're imitating Jesus. So they're giving and so God's grace is at work and there's this sense of giving and this sense of unity and it's really even hard to fathom what this was like where they just looked and everybody looked around and said, well, oh, there's people in need. I'm going to sell my extra land. I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to sell my cloak. I've got two of these. I'm going to give it to somebody. And that's exactly, and it's all about being in koinonia, about being in fellowship, being in common, about being one in heart and mind. And then it says there was one particular person, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field, he owned it and bought the money, and he did what? Put it at the apostles' feet. And so here's one guy, he does exactly that. He, he's an example of what's been going on in the church, where they're sharing in common and they're looking at what everybody's doing and they're laying at the feet. And then it says, now a man named Ananias, or... We might read that as buddy man named Ananias. In other words, we got the setup here. We got the setup. Here's this church where everybody shares everything in common and they're looking out. They're one in heart and mind. And we've got this guy they named Barnabas, the son of encouragement. He does the same thing. He takes what he has and he lays it at the apostles' feet. But there was a guy named Ananias who together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Just like the other ones, right? Sells a piece of property. But then it says, with his wife's full knowledge... He kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. So they sell the land for a thousand denarii. They say, well, you know, we were really planning on going on vacation this year. We need a new roof on the house. The donkey's looking a little lame. We might need a new one. And so they hold back a little bit of it. And then they come to the apostles and say, we're all in this with you. We're just like Barnabas. 
We're concerned about being one in heart and mind. We're concerned about the people in need. Here's what we have. And Peter says, Ananias, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? That's not what you're hoping to hear from the pastor when you come and give a donation, right? When you come and say, hey, pastor, I've got a check here for the church. What are you doing, Satan? That's not what we're hoping to hear. But, so, but this is what goes on. And this is where it gets a little tricky because how did Peter figure this out? Somehow God's spirit helped him to know. I don't know. And more importantly, we're going to wonder, what is it exactly that an Ananias and Sapphira did wrong? He says, and where Peter says, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? He's saying, Ananias, you didn't have to do this. And this is where I'm saying, it wasn't a requirement, but you chose to do it. He said, what made you think of such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, but to God. So there's some sense of deceit going on. There's some sense where they're lying about it. And the language is interesting because where it says in verse 3, chapter 5, verse 3, and you have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land. The word only shows up two other times in the Bible. One time is in um, 1 Timothy chapter 2, I think, where, where the language was translated really as stealing. But the other significant place is in the book of Joshua. So we have to go way back in our Bibles, book of Joshua. The people of God are entering into the land God has promised them. And one of the things God tells them is, when you take a city, all of what you capture belongs to me. And there's this other, among strange Bible stories, there's a story of a man named Achan. And they come into this city and they, they take the plunder. And Achan, he sees some bowls and some cups and stuff. And he says, I kind of like some of that stuff. And they're, all, they're supposed to bring all the stuff and give it over to God. And Achan takes some and he hides it under his pillow. And it's the same language. He kept back from some of it. And so part of what's going on here is there's maybe an echo, as F.F. F. Bruce says, about what's going on is this is a significant time where God's mission is people are starting to move forward and there's a moment of deceit, a moment of untruth, a moment of failing to commit fully to God, which begins to hold the people back. What happens to Achan? Well, the, the people of God kill him. Here, we see it seems like the spirit of God. We don't really know. It just says he dropped over dead. It doesn't say God strikes him dead. It just say he falls dead. But he falls dead. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Well, I'd be scared too. I mean, wouldn't you be scared? Like, hey, did you hear about Ananias? He went to give an offering to Peter. Peter called him Satan and he fell over dead. But then it says three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. So everybody else here has heard about it, but she hasn't heard about it. Well, what'd you get for the land here, Sapphire? Well, we got this much. And Peter's like, no, you didn't. How could you conspire to test the Spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door. In other words, they just finished digging your husband's grave. Now they're coming for you. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about the events. Yep, I'd be scared too. So we begin to ask the question, what in the world do we do with this story, right? One, I think we recognize that this isn't necessarily a normative story. I mean, I think that recognizing each story by normative, I mean, this isn't the pattern of how things always work. 
There's something unique about this story. And so sometimes we have to be careful and say, well, you know, if you lie about what you give to the church, God's going to strike you dead. Well, I want us to pay attention. Or if you lie to God, because that's what it says. If you lie to God, if you lie, then God's going to strike you dead. I want you to pay attention to who the other person in the story is. We have Ananias and Sapphira. And who's the other person in the story? Peter. What's one of the things Peter is best known for? Lying, right? I mean, when Jesus is arrested at the end of his life, three times people come to say, hey, Peter, aren't you, aren't, aren't you with that Jesus guy? Nope, don't know him at all. That seems like a pretty serious lie to me. Three times saying, I don't even know who Jesus is. In fact, that seems even a little more serious than not giving the whole offering. So we have to be cautious. I don't think it's simply, it is about, in some sense, the seriousness of lying. But it's not just about that. It's not just saying, look, look how seriously God takes this truth. He strikes the people that... It's about more than that. I think it has to do with this idea of having everything in common and being of one in heart and mind. Because what's going on here seems to be that maybe Ananias and Sapphira, they saw Barnabas and they saw that the, you know, everybody looked at him and said, hey, what a great job you did, Barnabas. And they thought, we can be like that too. People are complimenting Barnabas. You know, look how generous he is. So maybe if we give some of our money, everybody will compliment us too. But there's also a sense of saying, when they're one in heart and mind, it means that what they're thinking about is everybody else. And what does it say that Anna said? They conspired to keep back part of the money for themselves. They had the right to, they didn't have to sell the land. They didn't have to give the money over. But what they did was they came to the apostles and they said, here, we're all in. We're a part of everything. We're one in heart and mind. But the reality is they weren't. They weren't really one in heart and mind. They were thinking about themselves. They weren't thinking about others. And so there's a sense of saying, what we do with our possessions is a reflection of our commitment to the community. That as they're giving, they're saying, oh, well, yeah, we're a part of it, but they're holding back a little bit. And what the description that Luke has given is this sense of no one saw it as their own, but they saw it as belonging and they thought about what was good for everyone else and what was good for the community and not just good for themselves. And so part of what is happening is Ananias and Sapphira are thinking about themselves. Ananias and Sapphira are trying to gain reputation. Ananias and Sapphira are pretending to be all in they're trying to push something off, but they're not really. And so, one of the things I think that makes this challenging, particularly in our Western world, in the United States, in the churches, we often see money as this thing that's just between us and God. We see it as like, oh, you know, that all our giving should be in secret. We, we take our money and we stick it in a little envelope and we hide it and we make sure nobody else sees it. And so I'm just wondering out loud here. I think, I think when you saw these people, there wasn't a matter of like, oh, I'm going to hide what I'm doing. They came, they, they gave the things, they laid it at the apostles' feet. And some people say, well, Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Okay, it's an, it's an expression because... One, hands don't know anything. It's your brain that knows what. But what Jesus, the point Jesus was making is, he's saying don't give 
for the sake of recognition. Because there's this other story of Jesus when he's at the temple and he sees a woman and she drops two pennies in. And he says, look, that woman gave two coins. More than all these other guys. And they give. So there wasn't necessarily a sense of hiding it. And so part of what's going on is when we give, it's a way to join to other people. I'm going to step back just for a second. When we give, it's a way to join. Willie James Jennings talks about that. He says, when we read the story, one of the things we might initially think is we are amazed at the incredible generosity. But he says, what we fail to notice is the incredible joining. That the giving does what? It, it crosses the borders because money has a tendency to what? Separate and divide people. To the rich and to the poor, the haves and the have-nots. And here, they take what can divide and they use it to join together. The use of their money joins them together. And so when Ananias and Sapphira fail to do that, they're breaking the unity of the church. They're breaking down that. They're not using their gifts to join the church together. And so I wonder, as we think about it, is to say, how do we think about our giving to the church? Do we think about our giving to the church as something that joins us to others? Do we think, when I'm giving, I'm of one in heart and mind, that I'm committed to this, that what I'm giving is a level of commitment, a level of saying, I'm in this with you and we're all in this together. Which brings me back to this idea of our secrecy about it, where we're more than happy to tell everyone how many hours a week we pray. We're more than happy to say, well, I read my Bible this much this week. Maybe it's not to the whole church, and I'm not, I'm not by any means suggesting we're going to have a giant giving board up here. <laughs> there are churches that do that. We're not one of those. But when we're in a group together, are we willing to say, this is what I give? This is how I give. This is how I use my resources. Because, again, Jennings says something like this. He says, he says, our giving or money is at the heart of discipleship. It's not the heart of discipleship, but it's at the heart of discipleship. It's a part, so much a fundamental part of it. And so the question is, do we ever share with others, let others know, this is how I'm giving. This is what I'm doing with the resources that I have. Because what the Bible seems to teach us is this is a critical part of being a follower of Jesus. It's how we use our resources. Luke emphasized again and again and again in his gospel and now in the story of the book of Acts about how the people, what the people did with their possessions. And so the question is, do we have other people who are believers that we're in fellowship with, in other words, that we're in common with, that we're willing to have open and frank conversations about what we do with our physical resources? Or do we think, well, that's just about me? It's not just about you, because that's what Luke is saying is, what you own, first of all, doesn't belong to you, and that what made the church of one in heart and mind is that they were willing to share and have everything in common, that they had this sense of fellowship about their resources. So do we just hide and say, well, you know, what I give is just, it's, it's, it's a matter between me and God. And I think the story here suggests it's not just a matter between you and God. Again, this isn't a me suggesting that we just all of a sudden publish giving statements or everybody needs to know what everybody gives. 
but it's maybe a question for us to think about how do I think about my giving and how do I share that with others? How do others help me on the journey of discipleship in relationship to my possessions and to the things I own? So it's just a question to consider. Something to think about. To think about this. And this language of grace. How am I participating in God's grace by the use of my possessions? And so some of that depends on where you're at. If you're in those first steps of following Jesus, maybe you're not in the same place. But if you've been following Jesus for a long time, maybe you need to have a conversation with him. Say, God, I need to grow in this grace of giving. I need to grow in this way of looking that I truly think that what I have belongs to you. And when I give, I'm not just pretending. I'm not holding back some of it. And I'm not pretending by laying it at the apostles' feet and saying, look, I'm putting my money to the church when you're really holding back some of it. Again, it's not a matter of you have to give everything, but what is your relationship to the things you give? And I think that's what's going on in this story. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know, but I see this story and say, this is what I see is how do we do this? And there's this sense of, how we relate to one another in terms of what we're giving. And so I would invite you to, again, have a conversation if you're married, maybe with your spouse, maybe with a, with a small group and to say, how is what I give connecting me to the other people who are part of this church? How is my giving a reflection of us being one in heart and mind? How is what I do with the things that I own a possession? Because God seems to take this seriously. You know, and when we are breaking that unity, when we're holding back, it seems just we're breaking the unity and God takes that seriously. That's what moved the church forward was this being everything in common and sharing and, and looking out for one another instead of looking out for ourselves. And so how do we deal with the things that we have and our possessions and how does that relate to our following Jesus? Ultimately, it's just, it's a reflection of who God is. That God has called us to be one in heart and mind. God has called us to reflect his generosity and his giving. And so it's an invitation to say, what am I doing with the things that God has given? Do I take those things seriously and do I use them for the good of the people around me? Do I see myself as having fellowship, of having koinonia, of having everything in common with the people around me? It's a strange Bible story. You know, again, I don't think God's going to strike you dead if you don't write the check for the right amount. But it is an invitation to say, what am I doing with what I have? And how am I using it for the good of the kingdom? And so as we spend this week, may we ask ourselves those questions. And may the Spirit of God guide us and lead us. Amen.